time has come is we've got to go the extra step. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. I'll compromise. We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers. Geez, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to balance the power here. And I'm Claire Salmi. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to talk with Nathan Jandel, Assistant Director and Communications Director of the UW-Madison Office of Sustainability. In this role, Nathan works to develop campus and community partnerships on sustainability strategy. Nathan earned his BA in English from Middlebury College in 2005 after working as a carpenter, a public relations professional, and an internet service migration specialist, he returned to the world of language and environmental studies. In 2016, he received his PhD in English from UW-Madison. His academic work addressed the environmental humanities and 20th century American literature and art. Thank you so much for being with us today, Nathan. It's a delight. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so to warm up, this is the first time that we've had you on the podcast. Let's start with a little bit about you and your background. Sure. And we're super curious about what set you on the pathway towards studying both literature and environmentalism. It's an interesting pairing. So what shaped your interests in this kind of field? Yeah, I think the, the answer is a little bit uh, ex- to be expected in the sense that it kind of goes back to my upbringing. I grew up in rural Western Massachusetts, kind of in the woods on a, on a dirt road for at least part of the time. My parents were divorced, so my mom lived on a paved road. But we, in any case, we were we were kind of out in the sticks a bit. And so I was outside quite a lot. And I think I've just always been kind of oriented toward the natural world. Always been interested in just kind of heading out into the woods or the kind of fields around there and exploring. And family have always kind of encouraged that. So, you know, my grandfather showing me things about birds or plants or my mom was actually kind of an early early influence in the sense that, you know, she was always making sure that we were recycling or in Massachusetts, you can also return things. She was instilled in me the need to turn lights off, which I still do, you know, um, contribute to organizations like the World Wildlife Fund and that kind of thing. And so it's kind of this, you know, the combination of the value of conservation and the value of kind of caring about the world around you along with a, with a fascination. And then the literary side also grew up in a family that liked to read that like to tell stories, had sort of favorite books. And I got into writing pretty early. And so actually in fourth grade, I did a, uh, I joined a little poetry group in my elementary school of all things, writing poetry that is, and discovered that I kind of loved it. And I think my writing has always skewed towards reflecting my relationship or our relationship with the natural world, whatever else I was talking about. And I've always gained a lot of inspiration from that. So that kind of set the stage for me to, you know, continue to be interested in these ideas. And then that kind of went from there. I worked outside from the time I was about 16. I worked summers with a handyman. So we were always doing things. We were cutting trees. We were painting houses. We were fixing roofs. We were fixing stone walls. We were doing all that kind of stuff. So again, this very kind of tactile, somatic, in touch with what, you know, the world around you kind of experience. And then I ended up at Middlebury College in Vermont, another small kind of uh, rural New England, small liberal arts college, and was continuing to take up my passion for English, 
literature and writing in particular. And there I was also, I kind of insisted on not doing like a double major or having a minor or something like that. And instead taking a course each semester in something that I was just interested in. And I don't know if I'd recommend that as a career move, but for me, it allowed me to do things like take a cultural geography course that was utterly fascinating and really shaped some of the way it, it didn't shape so much as reflect truths that I started to feel about how we attach to place and what our relationships are to place. So actually professor at UW-Madison, Yifu Tuan, he was the mentor of the cultural geography professor that I was studying with at Middlebury. And his work is really influential from that early stage. I took courses in oceanography when I studied abroad in New Zealand, marine chemistry and marine biology. And so I kind of like created this eclectic academic interest alongside my more consistent interest in literature. And that sort of took me forward. So speaking of this, you know, kind of eclectic experiences and interests you've accumulated, you know, you've worked as a carpenter, a public relations professional, and an internet service migration specialist before coming to UW-Madison to get your PhD in English. And a lot of students, you know, including me, um, sometimes worry um, and think about the fact that, you know, can we do a bunch of different things after we graduate? Like, you know, will it hurt us? Um, is this experience valuable? Like, you know, there are all these opportunities. We'd love to jump around a little bit. But, and you did that, you know? So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Like what kind of, you know, unique experiences you garnered and the fascinating things you learned mm, by yeah. jumping around. Well, again, I, you know, I look around as students, students today. Can I generalize that much? Probably not. But looking around, yeah. say the interns in our office and a, a lot of the really, you know, fantastic students here at, at UW-Madison. And I see people who are doing like, a lot of things who are pursuing a lot of interests who are really trying to set themselves up for success, whatever that means. And I think I was always trying to do that, but to some extent I was, I was not so much thinking, okay, this will be my, this is my career trajectory and this is how I got to set myself up with internships and all of this stuff. It was more about how to maintain certain values and passions as I went forward and try to find a home in that from a job perspective. And, you know, I think there's some factors here to bring up in terms of, you know, privilege and so on that may have enabled me to do that. I don't think everybody has that ability to kind of just, in a sense, follow what they like to do and then things will work out. But it didn't necessarily work out very easily or quickly either. <laughs> you know, when I graduated from college, I, um, I went actually immediately back into manual labor because I knew it was a way to make money quickly. I wanted to be outside and kind of take stock. Um, and then I, I, moved, um, I moved back to Vermont and was trying to find a job in Burlington, Vermont with my newly minted English degree. So I had a great degree from a great institution and I thought, it's a matter of time before I'm going to find something. It turned out it was very challenging to find something. And one of the kind of countervailing forces to my success was that I did not want to move to New York or Boston, which a lot of my friends did, where I could probably have found a position there and kind of grounded out in the urban setting and it just wasn't what I wanted to do. And so um, I had, I stumbled around for a while that hence the internet service migration specialist, not really something we need to get into, but basically I worked for a company that worked with telecoms mm -hmm. and I had to deal with long spreadsheets and customer service with, you know, customers down in the South Southern part of the, the United States and trying to get them to change over their internet service, which was a really interesting experience, mostly in, in the sense of being in that kind of customer service relationship. So 
I think uh, this kind of wandering story is to reflect that um, wandering to me is okay. And in fact, um, most of the people who I know of my general age group and my general um, position kind of at, at UW, actually, a lot of academic staffers, I think, have found their way there through a kind of wandering route. I don't think there's often a really clear path um, that you just find and you grab onto and you go, unless maybe you're pre-med and then you go straight to medical school and then you become a doctor. And even then, I think once you become a doctor, my dad's a doctor, you learn a lot in that process and maybe you change over that time. And maybe you just, you realize that things that you thought were your interest or you thought to be true in terms of your profession or not. And so I think, you know, if anything, I've learned that kind of being open and flexible and nimble are really important skills to have these days and to not obsess too much about whether you are you know, wasting your time doing something. Like I learned something in every stage, very much including the digging holes and banging nails piece. And I can get to that later if if, if you're interested, because I think it was, I actually included that in my application for the, the job at the Office of Sustainability that I used to do that because I think it's relevant. And I think what's cool is to try to find a, find a path where you're able to kind of bring all of yourself to it. And that's where I feel very fortunate to have landed where I did. There's something character building about digging holes. It helps you understand other people in the world, uh, partly. You know, yeah. if, there's a, if there's a construction crew working or there's someone, you know, um, working in someone's yard or, or what have you, or like the large numbers of people in this world who do manual labor all the time, every day, you, you have a different appreciation for it. And you mm -hmm. also have a different appreciation for, again, kind of your relationship to, to the physical world. And I think that's something that can be difficult to have these days when everything is so digital and virtual and kind of detached. Definitely. It's an interesting perspective. And speaking of wandering, um, how did you find your way back into a doctoral program in English? <laughs> yeah. You know, you did all right. this stuff. How did you come home? Um, well, you know, I said something a minute ago about, you know, feeling as though you're wasting your time. I don't know that I ever got to the point of really feeling that way, but I know that I started to feel a bit stuck. So a few years after college, you know, there I was uh, and struggling a little bit. I, I worked briefly in public relations and that hadn't worked out super well. It just, it, it felt too, felt too salesy to me. I felt like I was kind of posing for these companies that I didn't really care about and writing about them and so on. So I kind of, I, I'd actually been laid off from that position and you know, I'd gone back into doing kind of under the table manual labor, and I was really trying to like figure out what what am I, <laughs> what am I going to do? I've got to come up with something. And I knew that I missed literature, and I missed intellectual exchange, and I missed kind of the experience of thinking about ideas and writing and so on. And I thought that I might also have some ability to teach, and so this started to lead me towards graduate school. I briefly thought about doing a master's in fine arts and MFA in poetry because I had actually written poetry through most of my college career and briefly, you know, entertained the idea that maybe I could try to be a writer in that sense, a creative writer. It's very, very hard to make a living doing that kind of thing. I'm married to a successful fiction writer. And so there, there is a, there is a way, but I wasn't writing novels. I was writing poems and it became clear that, you know, to get back into this world, you know, the PhD was probably a good way to go. And so I kind of took the leap and had to, you know, write up a, write up a long paper to serve as my writing sample and, you know, do a lot of research on different schools and ended up applying to 
10 different programs across the country, mostly in the East Coast, because I thought I was going to stay there. And then I, I didn't get into any on the East Coast. And so, you know, sort of, again, this kind of good intention wandering slash failing towards success uh, has probably been, to some extent, the, the story of my young professional life and found my way out here, which is one of the schools that I did get into. Oh, my spouse is Chloe Benjamin. Uh, she, her most... Um, well-known book is called The Immortalists. came out in 2016. And it oh, was, my God. Wait, yeah. Yeah, yeah oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's her. <laughs> that's flex. <laughs> yes. Well, okay. she's the flex. I just, I ride the coattails and try to help with editing. Some people, interestingly, go back to her first book, The Anatomy of Dreams, um, incidentally set to a large extent in Atwood hmm. here. And, and actually, some of them prefer it, which is very interesting to me because The Immortalists is the one that that really took off. It's a lot of fun. And I think, you know, uh, the PhD is obviously immensely research heavy. Um, it's a kind of, it can be a very individual pursuit, at least in the humanities. And that is, it is very different in the humanities versus the sciences, for example, the hard sciences, especially. But, you know, Chloe does a huge amount of research for her novels as well. And so we, we are able to kind of overlap a lot in the way that we kind of approach that kind of process. And I'm able to help her think through plot issues and logistical, you know, so uh, logic issues and remind her like, because she grew up in uh, the Bay Area in California that, you know, I remember this one famous moment where she was talking about a lemon tree growing in upstate New York. And I said, no, no, that's not going to, that's not going to work finding those little like snags that, you know, you have to kind of, you kind of have to be from there or kind of know, know enough to pick this up. Yeah, that's cool. Your publications, and we believe dissertation, engage with research and academic work at the intersection of literature and storytelling and environmentalism. So can you maybe talk about your dissertation research and help us understand how we might seek to read climate change kind of through the lens of fiction? Sure. And I'll say just as a plug, it was also not, not that you would have to know this, but also about poetry too, and sort of writing, you know, sort of mm -hmm. creative writing in general. Yeah. But so um, it's been a while, I have to kind of <clears throat> get myself into this, it's been a while since I did a proper uh, elevator speech on the dissertation, but in thinking about it before this interview, I think in the biggest sense what I was writing about in my dissertation was how our human relationships relate to our environmental relationships. At the time when I was finishing my PhD, so this was, uh, I, I actually graduated in 2016, so I was writing it, you know, for three or four years before that. There's a lot of talk about sort of decentering human from the conversation about the environment, kind of getting our getting out of the way of ourselves and thinking in terms of this this whole lively world around us as all being agents and actors and and stop basically stop being anthropocentric, this idea of putting human at the center of everything. And I found that really interesting and, and largely really important. But what I also found was that there is often this missing piece about how we actually as humans how we actually live in relationships in place and what those what that does to our kind of ability to regard and care for the natural world around us especially for those of us who aren't oriented towards environmentalism in the first place like how do we get there so you know i'm i said i was particularly i was interested in how human relationships relate to our environmental relationships and what i was particularly interested in is how we negotiate our attachments between people and how the way we do that could spill over into our sense of place and our care for the environment. So basically how we relate to others, how the kind of 
we can draw lessons from that in terms of how people then attach to the natural world around them. Um, and so I, I looked at different sort of dynamics um, that I saw in different pieces of literature to try to understand that. So I looked at, um, you know, boundary making, physical boundary making, as well as psychological boundary making, and kind of how that played out in Robert Frost's poetry. I looked at love and attachment and this psychological idea of felt security and Don DeLillo's white noise in particular and how the marriage at the center of that novel I think helps set up the main character for a new relationship with this very degraded natural world in which he lives. Uh, and then I in my third chapter talk a lot about kind of this idea of momentum and this inability to kind of slow down the pace of the world and how human relationships help us understand how to pause and slow down and then maybe pay attention in a different way. And so I was looking at two, two very different books, one Joan Didion's Democracy, and then the other is a novel by Peter Matheson um, called Far Tortuga. And I was comparing those two. So that was kind of the, that's kind of the overview, you know, diving deeper would kind of probably take a while, but I think that that's that's the way I was kind of looking at things. And one of the phrases that came out of the dissertation that still sticks with me is sustainable affect. So I was thinking about how we kind of orient ourselves affectively, psychologically to the all the problems that we have environmentally going on right now. How do we both sustain ourselves as people who have attachments, who need a sense of of felt security, who need a sense of I'm okay here while also helping people to sustain the world around them and kind of look outwards and engage with all the problems that we have. Because it's so easy to be overwhelmed, right? It's so easy to look at climate change and ocean plastification and species degradation and, I mean, name it, right? Drought and then, you know, war, flooding, everything. It's, it's all happening at once. How do you possibly pay attention to that? Uh, a lot of people can't. And I think, you know, a lack in environmental really kind of esoteric theoretical environmental discourse is often that it forgets what people need in relationships and that, that pretty much spans the globe, pretty much spans cultures and situations, you know, durable human relationships are part of what hold us together. And so what can we learn from them and how can we kind of, is there a way that that will help us apply those ideas to the way that we relate to the environment? So kind of, I know I'm kind of talking at a, maybe skimmy level here, but that's, that's, that's about as good as I can do right now, a few years out of the disc. No, I mean, thank you very much. I think that was a very succinct kind of summary. Okay. I, I, I enjoyed it. I know. <laughs> um, many political science majors are interested in climate, energy, and a variety of environmental issues. Mm -hmm. So can you maybe tell us about the Office of Sustainability and sure. your work with partners on campus? Yeah, absolutely. So... The Office of Sustainability is a pretty interesting office at UW-Madison. We're a relatively small group that we've grown in the last few years to about a dozen staff members and 16 undergraduate student interns who are uh, hired for year-round paid work with us and work for either a calendar year or sometimes more on different teams. The Office of Sustainability is what I call bi-divisional. So basically we, we have kind of a branch that um, reports up through the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies and that focuses on sustainability education and research. And that, that sort of team of which I'm a part is run by Professor Andrea Hicks in the uh, engineering department, who's affiliated also with Nelson. And she is our director of sustainability education and research. 
We also have a team that, that works under the aegis of facilities planning and management and is um, run by Missy Nergard, who's our the institution's actually first full-time director of sustainability. And they are also interested in education and research, but maybe their purview is a little bit more on facilities and operations and kind of institutional embedding of sustainability principles across all of the units on campus. And so that's kind of, we see ourselves as the hub for sustainability on campus and the cultivator for sustainability on campus and hopefully kind of the instigator for sustainability on campus as well. We, our work kind of runs the gamut from interns going out and certifying, let's say there's a, a student office somewhere, a student run office or, or maybe a lab, they will go and help certify that, that space as being on a, a range of different kind of uh, sustainability achievement level. So, you know, uh, bronze, gold, silver, platinum kind of thing. So we do certifications with, with labs, offices. We are now working in Greek life. Uh, we're breaking into athletics with a new student group called Student Athlete Leaders in Sustainability. We certify events and others. So that's kind of a really nitty gritty on the ground, person to person, like let's figure out your, make sure you know how to deal with your waste and recycling. Let's make sure you're thinking about your energy use Let's make sure, you know, all of that kind of personal action stuff. We also think of in those terms through our, you know, engagement and outreach. I do our communications. So, you know, we're active on social media, through our newsletter, on our website, trying to help kind of educate people and help bring them into the fold of, of sustainability. But we have a lot of other things that we do as well. We have a green fund, which is a pot of money for student-initiated sustainability projects on campus. So like the solar array on the top of Gordon Dining and Event Center. That was a green fund project. Major toilet retrofit in the university housing buildings, also a green fund project. And uh, so that's a really cool opportunity. I've also talked about how we're trying to kind of bring sustainability values into higher administration across campus. So the chancellor in 2019 signed something called the Second Nature Resilience Commitment, now the UW-Madison Resilience Commitment. So that's creating a plan basically to take climate action at an institutional level. And we're doing that by doing an assessment of campus in terms of how it is vulnerable and what strength and assets we have in the face of climate change, and then creating a climate action and adaptation plan. So that'll be coming out in the next year or so. In the meantime, we have a large leadership group called the Sustainability Advisory Council that's just spent the last year going through our sustainability assessment we did a couple of years ago and basically saying, okay, let's chart a path for you know, the coming decade at UW-Madison. What, how can we create a framework for sustainability leadership here? What are all the ways in which we can take action? And at what scales and at what resource use? And you know, what's the low-hanging fruit? What are the bigger picture ideas? So we're in the process of kind of refining that plan as well. And uh, so, so those are just a few examples. I'm happy to kind of get into specifics, but that's you kind of get the sense of the breadth and range of the work that we're trying to do. You also produce a student-hosted podcast, much like ours we hear. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us uh, about the focus and goals of that podcast and perhaps where listeners can find it? Yes. So the Sustain UW, uh, one word, Sustain UW podcast uh, is available on Spotify, Google, also on Anchor, which is where we actually post it, anchor.fm. And it's a podcast that we started actually during the pandemic. We found it one of these sort of silver lining things that we had time to, to think about a podcast. And so we have several student interns working on it. 
it's basically investigating, you know, the idea of sustainability, especially in the context of UW and in higher edu- higher education, and you know, asking some difficult questions like, you know, what are the what is the kind of complex racial history around sustainability and environmentalism? A lot of tricky questions around like food access and resources. Uh, so we've, we've gone through some of these big questions in the first season and then the, the second season, which we hope to, to launch in the next month or so, is going to be taking on three different series. So we'll be covering something called uh, a series called Hot Topics. So we'll be looking at what it sounds like, Hot Topics and Sustainability. Uh, a teaser is that we're hoping to have one on the Wolf Hunt in northern Wisconsin. We'll have a, a series on green paths, so it's environmental careers. And then we'll have a series on wicked problems. So, for example, our first episode in that series is likely going to be on single-use plastics and sort of what we do about them. So it's a it's student-run, but there are often guests who are from who are faculty, staff, authors, and so forth. That's super cool. Yeah, that, that sounds like fun. a good series. Wicked, wicked problems. Now? Wicked problems. Wicked problems. Yes. So it's this idea of problems that kind of are almost impossible to fix. Yeah. You know. But, but are kind of at the center of our lives often. Well, we Climate change lesson. is a wicked problem, people say. Sure is. <laughs> sure is. Sure is. You know, when, when random uh, parts of the ocean can just catch on fire, I mean. Yeah, right. I'd call it that. Yep. So I'm, I'm going to talk for a little bit, um, but uh, I'd love to know more about some of your recent publications, which raise some fascinating challenges to how we frame conversations about conservation and protecting the planet from environmental degradation. So in a recent review of a book, uh, Reconciling Nature, Literary Representations of the Natural by Robert M. Myers, you engage with an interesting angle on conservation. Quoting from the book, you write, as long as pristine nature is available to be consumed recreationally or imaginatively, its inevitable loss can be accepted. You know, pointing to progressive era preservation efforts in places such as like Yosemite National Park, have made bearable the continued environmental degradation of industrial capitalism. Lots of words. Yes. Important words. The book and your review of it engage with the argument that the climate crisis has altered this arrangement. Contemporary environmentalists are calling less for wilderness than for survival, less beauty than equity. Can you help us understand the shift in a framework from preserving beauty and wilderness to survival and equity? Mm-hmm. I can try. So, <laughs> so what? That's all I can ask. No, no, uh, no. It's 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 well set up. So what Myers is basically arguing is that there's these progressive area projects, like uh, in this case he's referencing the national parks, that basically are, and this is me um, kind of uh, skimming skimming his ideas a little bit, are are almost like distractions from this continued environmental degradation. So as long as you can consume quote-unquote wilderness in some sort of recreational and imaginative way, then you could ignore some of the other problems that are actually happening. That's part of what he was saying. And, you know, one of the things that I was kind of pushing toward in my review of his book was the idea that contemporary environmentalism is becoming more and more interested in questions of um, equity, environmental justice, the unequal effects of toxic, you know, uh, environmental toxification, climate change and so forth on disadvantaged communities and and that we are all susceptible to the impacts of climate change. It's not something that you 
uh, we are ultimately going to be able to escape. Wealthier, more privileged folks are going to be able to escape it longer for the most part, although they might lose a, a beach house here or there. <laughs> uh, but, you know, as long as they have their uh, their mountain house, then they're probably okay as long as it's not near a wildfire zone. But you, you could, there's, there's always somewhere to go um, if you've got enough money to a certain point. But for a lot of people who've basically been able to ignore this, that's not going to continue. And I think people are starting to understand that. And I would say that the younger generation in particular is saying this is a, this is literally a matter of sort of eventual life or death. And certainly the kind of persistence of our species in the way that we ideally want it to persist. And that climate change and other problems like it are exacerbating inequalities, divisions and so forth and are, you know, already starting to lead to, uh, you know, to, to conflict and to forced migration and so on. And so there's all the other things going on. It's not just about whether you're enjoying the wilderness or not, or able to escape to it, but like all these other deeper and scarier problems. And so that's, that's part of the way in which I was kind of trying to push on the premise of the book a little bit. So I've lost track of the last part of, I think, what your question was, though. Or maybe it was just to try to explain what it was that I was after in that review. Well, like, let, let's take it back a little bit. What is your take on the shift and oh, yes. whether it has or can be effective in altering policy and public opinion? Thoughts? Yeah, uh, it's it's an interesting question. So I think that the shift, the shift has come about in part as we've come to realize that some of the, you know, the grand figures of environmentalism, John Muir, say, um, we're actually kind of problematic people, you know, weren't too big on indigenous communities, for example, or, you know, and that a lot of the the kind of initial or sort of early values around things like conservation um, were basically for wealthy and often implicitly or actually white people to, you know, escape from escape from places that maybe were getting polluted. And then they go up and they, you know, they take their CS up and, uh, you know, the, the, White Mountains in New Hampshire and get some good air and then they come back again. You know, there's the kind of famous reading of the national parks as basically being inhabited places that were forcibly evacuated so that we could turn them into wilderness zones. So, you know, long, long, long history of indigenous um, people there that we, and then we decided to kind of get them out of the way so that we could, they could be open and clear for the rest of us to recreate in. And I think that history has just become a lot more present and people are trying to grapple with that. As far as the efficacy and the ability to kind of change policy, I think it's complex. I think it, I think it can be a very powerful argument to say that it's not just about saving, you know, the turtle, you know, the tortoise that lives in the hole in the desert somewhere that nobody's ever seen before, or, you know, saving some sort of theoretical view. Maybe you never had a view. Maybe you've never been to a place like that. Maybe you don't care about that. But, it, you know, it's about saving each other in a sense. It's about caring about our disadvantaged people or just our neighbors and so on, you know, making it human, making sustainability and sort of addressing climate change human. I think that's an effective argument. I do think, and I'm going to be a little cynical here, that the the blowback to quote unquote PC culture, to quote unquote cancel culture, to is is making it complicated because, it, you know, we have this kind of rhetorical war zone happening where... People are situated on very opposite ends of kind of the understanding of why it's important to think about these deeper contexts, why it's important to um, take an anti-racist approach to environmentalism, what that looks like. And for a lot of people, they just instantly say, I don't want anything to do with that because that's critical race theory or that's that's some other, you know, uh, quote unquote, leftist progressive 
ideology and I'm not, I'm just, that's, that's BS. I'm not going to touch it. So (laughs) we run into that problem. I think when you, when you start trying to make these ideas mainstream and so how you communicate about that, um, how you tell stories that people might feel compelled by um, and how you sort of move the needle and get around a little bit of the talking heads yelling at each other that we all then uh, associate with, you know, that's really the challenge, I think. You're telling me that Instagram graphics and, you know, 30-second news interviews aren't thought-provoking and deep and well thought out? Well, they can be thought-provoking. I don't know how deep they are. I think it depends. It's hard because we, we I know you're I know you're joking, but it's hard because we... We inhale so much these days. Yeah, and yeah. All of us, even if we hope that we are sort of relatively nuanced thinkers, have a hard time not skimming through things and seeing a meme that kind of triggers you into going, yeah, that's right. Whatever that is, that's a catchy one. But you're not necessarily going to click the link in bio to go find the, you know, 14-minute read article that's actually going to inform you about it. So, yeah, it's it's tough because you kind of need to you need to use – those channels, I think, to talk to people. And you also need to figure out what authenticity and kind of integrity is in in using those channels. And that's a really hard thing to do because, of course, authenticity and integrity have been completely co-opted by brands, by politicians, and so forth. And not everybody has the patience or necessarily the training to read between the lines. Definitely, definitely. Another recent article you wrote should environmentalists learn to take a joke uh, was really thought-provoking and, like much of your work, very interdisciplinary in the topics it engaged. And you raised this question of whether it is okay to, you know, be irreverent and to employ dark humor when it comes to serious planet-threatening issues like climate change. Mm-hmm. I've done it twice since this interview began. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give us a little background on this engaging article, why you wrote it, and your own take on the question, and whether, you know shame tactics work in cultivating mm-hmm. environmental engagement? Well, starting at the end, I don't think shame tactics... I mean, in, in my mind, shame tactics are overused. That's something I was also pushing against, I think, in my in my dissertation work, is like, um, you know, you got to go to where people are, are fulfilled and get them there and not just make them feel crappy about their choices. Um, and ideally, those things can overlap, you know, yeah. that you can maybe demonstrate that there are other choices that are as or more fulfilling or that can help them kind of create a better world around them that that don't feel so subtractive. I think that's one of the problems with a lot of rhetoric around sustainability and environmentalism is people think it's always about removing things or it's always about sacrificing things or it's always about kind of making their lives leaner and less interesting in some ways. And it, it is in certain senses, but it doesn't have to be only that way. We can make better choices and create better systems that are just as fulfilling, or I would say more so. A lot of choices are taken away from people because of the way that industry works now, the way that our kind of corporate-run politics works. And I think that means we feel like we don't have choices, but maybe we do, and it's really about making them more systemic. Um, the, The article you're referring to is another book review. That's kind of, that's kind of been my writing lately is about yearly reviews of interesting, more academic-y type books, which allows me to sort of keep my toe in that world without actually being an academic. And so I was I was reviewing a, a book by an author named Nicole Seymour. You know, I should say she's the one who's making the argument that basically environmentalists should learn to ch- take a joke. And she's she's, I would say, fed up with this kind of moralizing sanctimony that has often been 
characteristic of environmental writing, thought, activism, and so forth. And she's offering some really interesting, very different ways of looking at what kind of environmentalism can be through various different texts and movies that she examines in that, in that book. And so I'm kind of picking this apart. And I think what I find really compelling about it is this, again, this, this move away from sanctimony and moralism and instead thinking about, you know, other ways that people can care for or attach to the world around them that aren't maybe part of the, the common narrative of what that looks like or what it means or who can do that. I wish I had more of, I more quotations in my head. I don't have them memorized from, from her book, obviously. But yeah, I think, I think she makes a compelling argument. You know, the, the, the problems I had with the book insofar as I had the problems were more about how she was kind of trying to parse her argument a little bit and sort of, I, I think she tries to have it both ways in certain senses. I don't really think it's important for this podcast to get into why, and, and I encourage people to read the article. It's free on a, a website called Public Books. And you asked about how I got it, how I you know wrote the article. I was, I had a, a writer friend who was asked whether he was interested in reviewing the book and he thought of me and passed it on to me. And then I ended up working with some great editors at Public Books on this, on this review. So I do think reviews are, for, for those of you out there listening who might be coming out of a PhD or something like that and are trying to figure out how to keep your toe in the water, I think reviews are, are a cool way to do it because you can potentially reach people, you can engage with some ideas, um, and you can also try to write a little bit more for a public audience. I mean, I enjoy, I enjoy trying to kind of dig into these ideas, but also write in an engaging and interesting way. I think a lot of academic writing in humanities is, is immensely boring or jargon-filled and terrible. And there's plenty of jargon in these, in these reviews, warn people ahead of time, because you kind of can't avoid it. But there's, there's a lot. There's, a, there's some fun in there, too. It's, it's interesting because we're, you know, in this past, like, two years, we, we started to kind of understand, you know, the John Oliver effect, yeah. you know, stuff brought up in, like, last week tonight, like, mm -hmm. making its way into legislation within a few months. It's interesting. It's interesting to see how satire and comedy... Different takes on it. I mean, yeah. he, he does those much deeper dives, and it seems like there's a bit more of an almost activist effect that he's able to have. You know, it's not just it's not just a quick little stand-up bit. It's a, we have a problem here, and I'm going to make a bunch of jokes and drop some F-bombs, and it's going to be going to be hilarious but you're actually going to come out going oh my god this is a thing we need to address i'm going to trick you into learning right that's now. right I'm trick you into learning yes in a massive departure from our previous <laughs> topic right. yeah how can students get involved on campus to engage climate change and you know maybe get uncomfortable sure i like these questions i will kind of rattle off a few options and some of them i've referred to before so i won't go too far into them so Undergraduates can apply for our student intern program. We put the call out in usually February-ish um, for, and they start in the spring. Um, start in June, like roughly the beginning of June and go through the following May. They can continue. They work on different teams. It's a fantastic program, professional development as well as kind of learning how to be what we call sustainability consultant on campus. That's one way. Another way is to go to a Green Fund kickoff session or to contact our Green Fund program manager if, you're, if you've got ideas or are interested in collaborating on ideas for actual, usually physical interventions on campus around sustainability. So that's another way. Joining a environmental or sustainability related student org. We have a list of them on our, on our website and there are a bunch of them. 
Wisconsin Student Climate Action Coalition, Helios, which works on solar energy, CLEAN, or uh, Campus Leaders for Energy Action Now, the ASM Sustainability Committee, Urban, Ethical and Responsible Business Network, Slow Food, uh, goes on and on. So there's, there's a lot of great student orgs. I would say then in a more general sense, demanding action on the part of the UW. Students are the primary constituency of the university. They are why we are all here. And leadership are going to listen if enough students say, we want this, we need this, this is important to us. And especially if they figure out how to make articulate, well-reasoned arguments about it. One, it's one thing to get out there and make a ton of noise, and I think that's really important. But you also have to figure out what the follow-through is going to look like. So, you know, thing that's coming up more and more lately is divestment, you know, divesting the foundation from fossil fuel investments. Well, people can say that this is important to them. They can claim that this is a problem and the UW should do something about it. But that's a complicated thing to ask. And it's very easy to knock it down, actually. So, you know, if you look at other schools, how have they been successful? They've been successful because they've really got done their research, not to use that obnoxious phrase that everyone uses now. Uh, they've done their research. They've created partnerships. They work with faculty and that's how you push something like that through. It might or might not ever get through at UW-Madison, but I think it's a good example of what needs to be done if students are going to be leaders. And I think students at UW-Madison are poised to be leaders in this space, and a lot of them already are. So we've had a long, very productive and interesting conversation, mm -hmm. but what haven't we talked about that we should? And, Gosh. you know, what could we talk about next time? Well, I'd love to talk anytime with you all. This has been, this has been a delight. You know, there's, I would, I know this is a, such an easy, uh, an easy thing to say, but I would really encourage people to keep track of the work the Office of Sustainability is doing, in part because we're always trying to amplify what else is happening on campus. There are a lot of cool things happening on campus with regard to sustainability, environment, conservation, and also this whole social sustainability piece. Um, I meant to say, we have uh, one of the student intern groups we have is called the Social Sustainability Coalition. They run a speaker series called Amplifying BIPOC Voices in Sustainability. They just had their first event of the fall. And, you know, and that was actually on mental health in BIPOC communities, especially around uh, climate change and environmental degradation and so on. So these are really relevant topics. And I think, you know, attending these things, trying to talk to people is, is just really important. So we have a non-spammy once a month electronic newsletter all of this is on our website we are active on social media we have a great website at, you know for just general information and so keeping in touch reaching out to us if you have questions and if you want to get involved you know we're trying to build a community around this as much as possible to make this kind of part of the culture so i would just make that plug if you haven't heard of the office of sustainability come find us we're real people who want to talk to you and that's really what we're trying to do you know, there's lots of other topics that we could get into, like what does resilience look like? What does climate action look like on a campus like this? Or what sort of um, new relationships are we creating with people in the governor's office, for example, or working with UW system schools across the state? So there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of good stuff, but I think we've covered some great material here. Finally, given your interests in literature and environmentalism, we thought we'd ask you for a couple of recommendations mm -hmm. for students who are looking for a good novel. And you can, you, can, you can plug your wife, but, you know, <laughs> well, I'll let you decide. I'd like to plug my wife's future book, but I can't tell you anything about it. So ah, until then, probably time. a couple of years out anyway. Well, it's funny. I, I found myself thinking about, uh, thinking about this and, and, 
and the books that actually were in my dissertation, although they're older books, so people may or may not like them. But I think a book that I just think is utterly fascinating is one of the ones I wrote about called Far Tortuga, and it's by Peter Matheson. Now, Matheson is kind of a, he's a, a member of the sort of environmental writer elite, but I think this is a totally fascinating book about turtle fishermen in the Caribbean. And he did a New Yorker piece decades ago where he went there and fished with them and learned about this whole process. And then he converted this into this novel. And it's a novel that is physically, in a sense, unlike many, many novels I've ever read. It, it has sections that are essentially poetry almost, reflecting just the, 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 the space, the being out on a ship at night, you know, sailing along and just what you're hearing and what you're seeing. And the way that he depicts this is remarkable. The voices of the turtle fishermen, kind of the, the cusp of history that they're on as um, things are moving away from sailing ships to, to powered ships and the turtle fishery is changing and the climate, I think, is changing, even though he's not saying that. But there's a, there's a way in which the environment is changing. You can sense it in the book. It's just... A totally fascinating book and it sort of loosely maps against Moby Dick in a funny way as well. There's fascinating relationships and so on. So I'll send people back to that one. I also, I mean, I think there's there's so many good books out there. I'm actually not what they call a, a cli-fi climate fiction hmm. expert. So, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I have any like super recent novels that I would point people to. So I'm going to, I'm going to stick with that as the recommendation, but there, there's a lot out there. So um, I'm, I'm happy to come up with a list and you can put it on your website or something if I, if you need it. Solid place to start. Yeah. It's a place to start. Can't say no to that. Well, thank you so much for the recommendations. Thank you so much for the engaging conversation. And you know what? Thank you so much for being with us today, Nathan. It was a delight and an honor. Thanks for having me. For more information, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers and Claire Salmi and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.